This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener, we're so pleased you can join with us. Uh, what do we do? For the next hour, we take people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue or challenge you're facing in life or your application or understanding of a passage of Scripture. Well, if we can be of help in this beautiful day in September, we will do our best. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, locally, it's 843 525 1859, or you can email us directly here into the studio. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you call, we certainly give preference to live callers, uh, or you can dictate, and we'll give preference to them. And then the email questions we typically take last. But we've had so many email questions come in. Rick, I feel like we're behind, but in God's time, we'll. We'll cover them, and when your question is answered, we typically email you back saying, hey, on this date, your question was answered. It might be a month later or two months later, but you will, by God's grace, get an answer. All right, let's go ahead. All right, well, at the very last minute of our last program, a listener called in and asked, how do you go about defending a pro-life position when a friend brings up in, in the Bible the Israelites killed children when conquering Canaan or David's child dying as punishment? from his sin with Bathsheba. Well, it's a good reminder for us as Christians right now in South Carolina, especially in Beaufort County, to call our senators because what was affirmed last week in the House is going to be disputed in the Senate. And a lot of the fine work that was done to protect human life, they are going to attempt to undo. And uh, those who live in Beaufort County, especially because that's the root of it, uh, they're going to filibuster the Senate potentially and stop uh, the protection of of human life. So I hope you'll call if you haven't already. They need to be just inundated. So when I think they meet in the evening, but they'll get all the email and phone calls uh, during the day and uh, do your best to do that. Okay, so good question. Fair question. And it's a critique that sometimes people throw at us as Christians. God said this in, in Deuteronomy, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. When the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Very, very clear. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favoritism. You're not to intermarry with them and so on and so forth. Interestingly, a little bit later towards the end of, it's almost like a sermon, really is. I mean, Moses is kind of giving his last exhortation to uh, the people of Israel before uh, he dies on top of Mount Nebo and before they go into the promised land. 
Uh, God uh, speaks uh, in Deuteronomy 20 of the various laws of warfare. And let me just turn there. In verse 12 of that chapter, it says, um, uh, however, it does not make, if that nation does not make peace with you, um, he goes on to say what they should do. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and children and the animals and all that is in the city and all the spoil, you shall take his booty for yourself. Um, but then he says, but a few verses later, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, and so on. So with this particular group of people, God gave some very clear admonitions as to what they were to do. Every man, every woman, every child. And Joshua records, if you've read the book of Joshua, what happens after Moses' death, how Israel carried out that command uh, in city after city uh, throughout the land of Canaan. And I know that's offensive to unbelievers, and it certainly can be disconcerting for a Christian uh, who doesn't understand it in its historical context. And so this listener is asking a good question because this is the kind of thing that the unbeliever will throw in your face to say that we're hypocritical or God's not really pro-life. Well, whether people know it or not, certainly the, the, the very moral sensibilities we have in our hearts today come from a Judeo-Christian ethic. Uh, that's why we think the way we think. And so that's not accidental, not to mention the law of God has been written in your heart. And so this command to kill all the Canaanite people, including children, seems almost jarring and maybe even not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Um, God says, for instance, by the prophet Ezekiel, let me just read that. I'm reading from Ezekiel chapter 33, and God tells his prophet, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn away, um, turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then should you die, O house of Israel? So God, of course, is speaking to his people and just reminding them that he takes no pleasure in divine discipline where he takes out their lives. Even, even Jonah, which we studied not long ago, we did a verse-by-verse exposition And uh, God reminds Jonah about the Ninevites and how he wanted to be compassionate and how he's moping under that little plant. And, you know, he says, look, you know, there's a lot of cattle in the city, not to mention there's a lot of children who don't know the difference between their right and their left hand. I remember when Abraham had that discussion with God where God's going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham almost seems like he's bargaining with God. God, if there were 50 people that were righteous, would you destroy it? How about 40 and 30 and 20? And God said if there were 10 righteous people, he would have spared the land. Um, and, And so God says and affirms in the writing of Moses that the judge of all the earth will indeed act justly. So because we don't understand something, doesn't mean that it's not right. God can do as he pleases. He is God. And if God decides that he wants even the children to be taken out, he has a reason for that. Now, think your way through this. This is important. God knows that these people, these Canaanites, are viciously wicked. 
In fact, if you remember when God made the Abrahamic covenant, remember that time when uh, God put Abraham to sleep and he cut some animals in half and this dream and and it's a unilateral covenant because it's not dependent on Israel's obedience. And God walks through the split pieces all by himself. And God's going to fulfill his promise to the people of Israel, contrary to supersessionism or what we call replacement theology that R.C. Sproul and John Piper and Alistair Begg and a number of people, Vadi Bakum, have, have taught. Um, God is not done with the people of Israel. And there's a lot of Christians who are asleep today. But with that said, God made this covenant. And then in that context, he reminds his Abraham that your people are going to go to this place of captivity, namely Egypt, for 400 years until the iniquity of the Canaanite is full. In other words, God is going to even allow his own people to languish in slavery and suffering for 400 years giving the Canaanite people every possible chance to repent. But when that time expires, they will be ripe for judgment. So it's not harsh for a couple of reasons. One, God knew that if these Canaanite children were allowed to live, what are they going to do? The same thing that their parents did. And what their parents did was just, well, similar, I suppose, to the abortion clinics here across the United States of America. Little babies and wombs are being vacuum cleaned out or torn apart limb by limb by limb. I I wish I could have asked the president the other day when he was defending the right of a woman to abort. You know, you used to say what President Clinton said, you know, abortion should be safe, but it should be rare. You used to say that, President Biden. Do you agree with your Democrat co-host, do you agree with your own vice president that it is the right of a woman to exterminate her baby up until the day before it's born, that a physician can go in and tear a baby apart limb by limb by limb? Do you agree with that, Mr. President? That's wicked. Well, if you think that's wicked, you can multiply it a hundred times over by what the Canaanites did with their children. And God just knew that the sins of the father would be taught to the next generation and it would continue. So it was actually an act of mercy for God to allow the Canaanite children to be taken out. Because if you believe that God's grace is extended to those who die in infancy or small children, as the Bible teaches, then the death of these children actually meant their salvation. So uh, they, I guarantee, were in a moment's time in a perfect place, incomparable to what they were experiencing back on the earth. I suppose uh, Harry Truman had a little bit of a dilemma. Remember when he had to drop those atomic bombs, and you read different numbers, but somewhere between 90 and 150,000 people died on the first few days in which the bombs were dropped on those major cities. But in his mind, he was saving approximately 30 million people. Now, some people think those numbers are exaggerated, but even conservative people would put it at 20 million people. So somewhere between 20 and 30 million people were spared by virtue of the fact that he did what he did. Now, it's not a moral dilemma for God because he is the God of the universe and he will only do justly and he sees the beginning and the end and he has all knowledge. So it was not a dilemma for him. 
So he was acting perfectly and justly when he asked the Israeli armies to take out all the Canaanites and not to leave a single person. So this is actually a pro-life God, and to use this as an excuse to say that we're inconsistent and the God of the Bible is not pro-life and that the Scripture is contradictory is really to do what Peter says, to distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Amelia from Beaufort writes, uh, Pastor Carl, is there a good book you would recommend that explains the difference of what the Bible says and what Calvinism is? I'd love something to reference when I hear or read something from a Calvinist that I disagree with, but can't always remember the specifics of. Obviously, the Bible is the first place I go, but I'm looking for a book to thoroughly explain the differences of the religion from the Bible with Scripture references. Thank you. Well, Calvinism is a huge subject, and so typically when people use the term Calvinism, they are referencing John Calvin's teachings as it related to the doctrine of salvation. And you have to understand, too, that even modern-day Calvinists were more Calvinists than John Calvin was, because John Calvin was not a limited redemptionist. He did not believe in a particular limited atonement that Jesus died only for the elect. And you can discern that from reading his own commentaries. My son Jeremy did an excellent paper, I thought, when he was at Liberty University a long time ago, and uh, he wrote a, a paper on why John Calvin did not believe in limited redemption. And it was really strong. And he just quoted Calvin's own words. With that said, Calvinism covers a wide range of topics. It covers a certain ecclesiology. John Calvin, for instance, thought that uh, the church was the new Israel, and therefore the church should model itself after the theocracy that they had in Moses' day. That meant that if uh, people were theological heretics, they should be killed. Well, uh, he did that. He practiced that with one gentleman. And so he had him burned alive. And he said, make sure the wood is plenty green so he suffers a long time. Calvin said some grossly anti-Semitic things about the Jewish people. So his doctrine of the church, his doctrine of end times, because he believes there's no future for Israel, then certainly... Uh, the way he views even the book of Revelation, which he had trouble viewing because he wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation. I have the full set of Calvin's commentaries. He doesn't have one on Revelation. It's conspicuously missing. It influenced, it flavored so many of his doctrines. So he taught infant baptism. When I read Calvin's Institutes and I read his argument for infant baptism, it makes me want to believe in credo-baptism. Uh, that is believer's baptism rather than pedio or infant baptism, pedios for a child, ch- children being or infants being baptized. But his argument was because the church is the new Israel, just as the first generation of adults that were circumcised uh, were full-grown men and then they're infants on the eighth day, so he made a parallel with baptism. Uh, huge problems with that, obviously. I have a 32-page handout on baptism. If someone's interested, we'd be happy to email it to you that walks you through why infant baptism is grossly wrong. But I'm guessing, but I don't know, Amelia, uh, who emails this, that you're thinking of Calvinism in reference to 
uh, largely the doctrine of soteriology in the popular way that the term is used. So I would suggest a couple of things. One, if you want to do a full-blown study on Calvinism, then I would point you to Dwight Pentecost's book, Things to Come. It was actually his doctoral dissertation that he did in 1956. Uh, He was, without a doubt, my favorite professor at Dallas Seminary. I took more courses under Dr. Pentecost than any other single professor. All my electives, I basically, you know, went in his direction. But his uh, Things to Come book was basically a rewrite of his doctoral dissertation. And he does a superb job on showing why, indeed, Calvinistic amillennialism is grossly erroneous. If you're thinking pointedly in reference to the doctrine of salvation, that is the doctrine of election and how we are to understand it, then I would point you to Dave Hunt's book. He wrote a book called What Love Is This? And it was subtitled, if I remember, Calvinism's Misrepresentation of God. And I remember when it came out, Tim LaHaye said this was indeed the single single most important book of the 21st century. But he does a great job in walking through some of the false doctrines that uh, Calvinists had. Now, let, let me just say there's a lot of true doctrines that those who would call themselves Calvinists, you know, agree to that we would totally affirm. But there's some things that they were definitely wrong on as well. Um, And then I might even point you to my own series in Romans 9, 10, and 11. I do a verse-by-verse exposition, largely in reference to the doctrine of salvation and election and how we're to understand it and so on. Um, That would be a great study um, because Paul is answering in that section um, what he ends up Romans 8 in. Uh, Some have represented Romans 9 through 11 as kind of a parenthesis in the book of Romans, but it's really not. Uh, Paul is giving an argument that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so a thinking Jewish person, which would have comprised a good part of his audience who would read the book of Romans, would think, well, if if God loves us with an everlasting love, then how are we to understand his promises of an everlasting love to the people of Israel? And that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 does. In 9, he deals with not individual election, but with national election. That's where it's pointing. Those who are individually chosen of God to carry out his purposes are in view of him as choosing a nation. In chapter 10, he doesn't deal with Israel's election, but Israel's rejection. Why are they in unbelief? Why did they reject their Messiah? And then in chapter 11, with Israel's future restoration. So their past election, their present day uh, rejection, but their future restoration where God will sum up time uh, through the people of Israel. So that would be a great series. I'm not sure how many messages. There's probably 12 or 15 messages you'd have to sort through. But if you really want to understand this topic, that's where I would direct you. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we've got a live caller standing by, Alberto from Savannah. How are you this morning, sir? Yes, good morning. Thank you. My question is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 14. Now, the verse, I'm talking about verse 9, where it says, uh, be, do not be deceived. And that that apply, that that's not apply to the unbelievers or to the believers. Because I know Christians, once you're you're righteous, you're righteous. So that that 
apply to unbelievers or believers. Do not be deceived from verse 9. That's a book, uh, chapter yeah, six, yeah. all the way through fourteen. Okay, okay, great question, Alberta. So let me see if I can respond. Obviously, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So even if God writes something about unbelievers, it has direct application to believers. Now, if you remember, the church at Corinth was a babyfied church; they should have grown up by now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. A spiritual man is a mature Christian, not someone who's arrived, because we don't fully arrive until our bodies are translated and when we go home to be with the Lord. Um, but people um, who are spiritually mature, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual men, mature Christians, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you, notice the past tense, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Why? For you are not yet able to receive it. Here's the change of tense now. Indeed, even now, you're not yet able. So he's relating his history with them. As you read the Acts of the Apostles, Paul planted this church. And so as new believers, he didn't deal with them as spiritual, mature people. In some places, he could choose Jews to be elders in the church. Well, wait a minute, not a new believer. Well, in the truest sense, some of them were not new believers. They were following the God of Israel all along. And so their faith was just completed in that the Messiah had come. And so they had a great spiritual knowledge of God's Word. But in some cities that were largely Greek, you know, just about everybody was an infant. They had no real knowledge of of God, except through general revelation given through this, um, the creation and through conscience. And so as new believers, he dealt with them as babes in Christ. The problem was, indeed, even now you're not yet able. There's jealousy, there's strife among you, you're walking like mere men. So some of these believers who should have grown up and matured were still uh, displaying a lot of uh, expressions of infancy. In fact, when you come to the 11th chapter, Paul gives an affirmation, you know, I'm grateful to you that you, you know, follow the traditions, meaning the truths that I delivered to you. The problem was, is that they had only grasped a small amount in terms of the application to their personal life. And so in chapter 11, some of them were getting drunk. Here in chapter 6, some of them were falling into sexual immorality. You say, well, a true believer can't do that. A true believer can do anything. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. So why would Paul write this? Well, for two reasons. Number one, it's an opportunity to do some self-examination. In his second letter, in the 13th chapter, he will say to the Corinthians, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. And in one respect, he's kind of doing that here as well when he says, or don't you know, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. The problem with deception is people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. So don't be deceived, not fornicators, that's premarital sex, nor idolaters. Idolatry is anything you put above God nor adulterers, that's extramarital sex, nor effeminate, that's a reference to male prostitutes, the passive partner in a homosexual relationship, nor homosexuals, that would include, you know, lesbians and homosexuals in general, nor thieves, nor the covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, such were some of you. So these people, many of them were saved out of homosexuality, out of adultery, out of drunkenness, out of thievery, out of covetousness. They were saved out of that. Um, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So you have a new standing. God has set you apart. He's declared you righteous. And so then in verses 12 through 20 of this same chapter, he's going to basically exhort them to live out that new standing. And then starting in chapter 7, he's going to address specific ways in which they need to do that. He's going to basically answer their questions because in seven one he says, about the things of which you wrote me about, and he ticks off their questions one by one by one by one by one, in terms of what a set-apart, declared righteous person should do and live like in the everyday moments of life. So on the one hand, it is certainly a reminder to the unbeliever, but it's a reminder to Christians. You know, Christians are being buffaloed today by guys like Sam Alberry and, um, you know, so many, so many Christians who are saying that same-sex attraction, Christianity is fine, that you can have feelings towards a person of the same sex as long as you don't uh, fully express it. And by fully express it, he means the worst. And so he's even giving, you know, permission for a certain amount of affection to be shown between two men to a particular limit. And this is pathetic. This is the revoice movement of the Presbyterian Church of America that needs to be stomped and crushed by this traditionally conservative Presbyterian Bible-believing denomination. Um, it, It needs to be smushed in the Southern Baptist Convention when you have the past two presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention saying that, you know, God whispers about homosexuality and sexual sin, but he, he shouts about things like greed, softening what God says about homosexuality. That needs to be stopped. That needs to be crushed because it opens the door for all kinds of false behavior. So God is very clear. You know, as someone came up to me in between the services on Sunday and very often on Sundays, I have to leave one service and just go get a maybe a frappuccino, then go up to the baptismal and change and do a baptism in the second service. But I didn't have a baptism on Sunday, so I was able to stand out there for a few minutes. And this gentleman had come up, and he had brought actually his uh, friend into the office for me to share the plan of salvation. And his friend didn't receive Christ, but had a lot of questions and good questions, which I was thankful for. Uh, but his own pastor, a Presbyterian church here in town, USA, married his son to his boyfriend. And he took objection with me, taking objection to that. Well, he's not arguing with me. He's arguing with God's word. He's arguing with a text like this, where God says that homosexuality, homosexuals have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, and don't let anybody buffalo you because that's precisely what God's Word teaches. And so it's, it, it, this should be read carefully by Christians because they're being buffaloed and the door is being cracked. Uh, the door is being made wide open in the Roman Catholic Church. So there is a, a leading individual who's just received an appointment to the Vatican 
that has been encouraging Roman Catholics to celebrate, you know, June, which is kind of, you know, Pride Month. And he's just appointed to the Vatican. This pope is, his health is waning, but he just selected, I think it was 20 cardinals. Don't quote me on that. I need to go back and look. But he just quote, he just selected a large number of cardinals who, again, are going to be involved in the selection of the next pope when he steps down because it appears he's going to retire like the last pope did due to health problems. And I think the church is going to move into outright unabashed homosexuality. And this pope has already made a number of statements that would just lead you to believe nothing else not to mention a number of the other heresies that he has made as to, say, the uniqueness of Christ being the only way to heaven and so on. So Christians need to heed this. So it's certainly an admonition to the believer, and it's a text that the believer could take an unbeliever to, that it's an oxymoron to say, well, I'm a, I'm a adulterous believer. I'm a fornicating born again. I'm a homosexual believer. No, that's an oxymoron. You're, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away. Behold, all things have come new. And if someone is saved out of the homosexual background, just like a heterosexual might have heterosexual lust towards someone of the opposite sex, that needs to be brought under the sanctifying power of the Spirit as homosexual lust is. But if someone is a new creature, he's going to hate that sin. He's going to want God to change that sin. And to bring those feelings, those emotions, those evil desires under the sanctifying power of God, the Holy Spirit. So it has application both ways. And so if you're trying to help an unbeliever who, say, is professing homosexuality or that gentleman who is in my office whose son is gay. And so what is he doing? He's acquiescing to the spirit of the age which, oh, you don't want to be controversial. You don't want to be considered homophobic or hateful. No, we're not being hateful. We're being loving. Because if this kind of lifestyle is proof positive that you haven't had a second birth and you're headed towards hell, the most loving thing you can do would be to confront it. And so then what you're doing is you're saying either this is true, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 and what follows, or it's false. And so then it comes down to, is the Bible true? And again, we have internal evidences within the Scripture. I've wrote a booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True. When someone comes to meet the pastor, I give it to every single person. It's sold on Amazon for like six bucks. They're the only ones who make money. I don't. And so it's it's a helpful uh, polemic as to why we have the only authoritative book. Because that's what it comes down to. Is the Bible authoritative? Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we had a listener call in and they asked, how do you let a church group know that communion is not for children who have not yet believed? They quote, let the little children come to me as reason for them to, but how do you communicate that it's only for believers, hence believing children? Any scriptures would be appreciated. Well, when you reference what Jesus had said in Matthew's gospel, um, you're referencing a very important truth because sometimes I think we diminish all that a child can take in and absorb. Um, and so Jesus, you know, gives a series of woes in the 18th chapter about causing a little one to stumble. And that is sadly happening. I, I just think of these churches that are hosting drag queen parades on Sunday morning, 
parents who are bringing their children to libraries and other venues in which even we had a senator and a congressman last week bragging about their involvement in, you know, a drag queen show. We had the Speaker of the House go to a drag queen uh, runway where she gave affirmation looking for dirty votes. And, you know, this is really sad. This is pathetic. And, and God takes it very seriously when we harm little children. And the Lord uh, gives a very strong and uh, warning uh, about causing a child to stumble. He said it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck, a heavy millstone. And if you have the New American Standard, Matthew 18 and verse 6, it, it gives a, a literal reading, a millstone turned by a donkey. And so um, that would be the literal reading of the Greek. And that's important because he's not talking about even a smaller millstone that a woman might use in her home to ground uh, her wheat into flour, but a heavy millstone that a donkey would would pull around a turnstile maybe to, you know, crush the olives in order to produce olive oil and so on. And so this is a serious, serious thing. So we should do everything we can in evangelicalism to welcome children. And I think it's a big mistake, a big mistake, where children are being removed from the services. I tell folks, if they're old enough to know their phone number and their address, they're old enough to be in the worship service. And I have children who come in at six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age who have been in the worship service since they've been five. And some of the questions they ask me as a pastor, which come from their exposure to the messages that I'm giving, are profound. And so don't ever underestimate what a child can learn. Now, with that said, to zoom in on your specific question, the Lord's table, like baptism, is directed towards believers. And so when the Lord's table comes, it, it is important that as parents, we're being very instructive. And so you withhold the Lord's table to a little boy or girl who has not yet received Christ. Now, I will give a caveat here, and this is basically local church polity in terms of uh, how a local church is going to apply this. So in some local churches, they would say, well, we're not going to baptize you until you're born again. And that's true. That should only happen as best we're able to discern to a, a young person who's born again. But they would add to that, and until you're baptized, you cannot participate in the Lord's table. And so you could argue both sides of that coin. Uh, the position we've taken is if you if your perception is that your child has received Christ as their Savior, then let them participate in the Lord's table, but certainly not without instruction. Before that should happen on a Sunday morning, you should be engaged with your child. Well, what does this really mean, and what does it represent? See, God gives symbols in the local assembly for a number of reasons. One reason is to get children to ask questions. So when they crossed the Jordan River, they were to stack 12 stones. When they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, they were to stack 12 stones. 
And so when the kids came by and said, Dad, what do these stones mean? You say, oh, that's the day God split the Red Sea in two. That's the, the day God divided the, the rivers of the Jordan so that we could come across on dry ground. And so it becomes a teaching tool. So number one, it is a teaching tool to children. When children say, well, I see my friend up there getting baptized, and why can't I get baptized? That's an opportunity to do some personal evangelism. Or why do people get baptized? Why does Pastor Carl put those children under the water? Why do they take the Lord's Supper? What does this mean? I just want to have some bread and some juice. And so you're withholding it from an unbelieving child. And again, you know, um, this is important. It's a teaching opportunity. So again, you can argue at both sides. So I'm not dismissing or saying they're wrong when they say, well, they first have to be baptized, you know, you, or, or the reverse way. I certainly will not baptize a child unless they can basically share the plan of salvation with me. And if they can't share the plan of salvation with me in some way by answering some basic questions that I'm going to ask uh, where they can give the right answers, where they show ownership of the gospel, I'm not going to baptize them. And I know sometimes parents are convinced, oh, their child is a believer, and then they bring them in, and I ask them the same questions the parents asked, but when I ask the same questions a different way, they give the wrong answers. What does that say? It says that the child doesn't really yet understand the gospel. So if a parent says, you know, Sally, how sure are you on a scale? I'm 100%. And I ask, hey, Sally, if you were to die right now, are you not sure, kind of sure, or real sure you go to heaven? I'm kind of sure, Pastor Carl. What does that tell me? They don't own the gospel yet. And so um, when it comes to baptism, they have to be very clear. I think certainly if your perception is, is that your child has received Christ, then use that as a teaching tool if you're going to allow them to participate in the Lord's Supper. So that's kind of a parental call. But again, you know, 1 Corinthians teaches. Now, I, 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 you know, I will say that um, this text of Scripture is often used because of the meaning of a word in the Old English that had a different meaning in the 17th century than it does today. Um, so he tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, um, he speaks about the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And, and as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, in light of these truths, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Um, and then he goes on to say, but a man must examine himself And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So God actually wants the believer to eat. But who is he addressing in the context? He's addressing born-again people, that we are not to participate in an unworthy manner, as some of the Corinthians were doing by the illustrations that he had just given in the first half of chapter 11. But then he says, and this is where the misunderstanding comes, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So, um, interestingly, in the King James Version, if you'll pull up for me uh, on the internet, because I don't want to misquote it, Rick, the King James Version translation of 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 29. 
So let me read verse 29 again. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you, you who, you Corinthians, you born-again Christians who are called saints in the opening uh, introduction to this book, for this reason, because you didn't judge your body rightly, you participated in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Some of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now, the King James, how does the King James render 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, Rick? Okay, I'm uh, trying to find He's it. Here we it go. Up. Yep, okay. there it is. Um, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So the word damnation in our day, we think purely of eternal retribution. But it had different nuances in 17th century English. And so even the New King James does not render it that way. He's dealing with judgment. In fact, that becomes even clearer when you read verse 31. Again, some of them were under the discipline of God, weak, sick, and a number sleep. That is, some died prematurely because they went to the very table that was symbolic of what Jesus had done for them, and they flippantly approached it with unconfessed, unrepented sin in their heart. And then he says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so he's speaking here of divine discipline. That's the quote-unquote damnation um, that the old English uses. But again, this is why it's like on Sunday we were quoting John 14, in my father's house are many mansions. Well, the word mansion in the 17th century was not a palatial, uh, magnificent estate, but it was actually a room. In my father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places, many rooms. It referred to a room. And so he's describing a magnificent place, the father's house that has a multiplicity of rooms. And so when you have your family home for Christmas, they're all in the same house and they're in many rooms. And in the Father's house, God's people will be together. And again, that's just the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth. We're doing a series on Sunday morning on God's prophetic schedule, and so that came through. So again, that's why a modern literal translation can be very, very helpful to you. But here's the point. He's addressing believers not to participate in an unworthy manner. So some have said because of a an older translation. It really was not a mistranslation. It might be a mistranslation for the 21st century, but it was not a mistranslation for the 17th century. But because of the way the 17th century English rendered it in light of today's English, sometimes a pastor would stand up and say, well, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't participate. Just pass the elements to the person next to you. And that certainly should be true, but that's not the admonition. The admonition is to saints, believers, not to participate in an unworthy fashion. That's what we should be focusing on when we come to the Lord's table. But certainly, let's extend that application to an unbelieving child or to, for that matter, an unbelieving adult. If an unbelieving adult has not received Christ as his Savior, and a pastor, assumingly, is explaining the meaning of the elements of what they represent, 
and they're participating in the Lord's Supper, knowing that they've not received Jesus as Lord, then they're really hardening their heart. And so that's not a good thing either. And so it's not a good thing either to let your child participate in a table that is designed for believers only um, when you're not convinced that they have really truly received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So see it as a teaching opportunity. With all of our children, they would say, you know, what does this mean? And we would always give our children permission in church that you could whisper a question in our ear. And we might not answer it right then, but we'd write it down. And when we got home or maybe over lunch, we would discuss that question. As the children got older, we'd see how maybe an older child would answer it for a younger child. And you're developing their biblical theology. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Marty from Columbia writes, I was wondering if you knew anything about The Well, a men's Bible study group. Also, about a new church planning group called recovery.church. And what do you think about these if you do know anything? Well, I don't know anything about the well, but I do know something about the recovery church movement. And it's a system of churches. I don't think it's that large. I don't know the exact number, but their focus and their target audience, so to speak, are people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, and they want to extend an open arm and present to them some hope that things can be changed through faith in Jesus Christ, that they don't have to live a life. I don't like the word addiction because addiction kind of makes it sound like it's a disease or something. It's a sin. It's not an addiction. It's a sin. Um, With that said, what you do not find in Scripture, and I think every church should have open arms. Um, We just uh, participated uh, in giving to a ministry in Beaufort uh, that is trying to reach alcoholic slash drunkard slash drug addicted men, even alcoholic alcoholism, some people say is a disease. Well, it's not a disease; it's a sin. Now, it may disease your body, but it's not a disease. If it's a disease, then how can God hold you morally responsible? Uh, Alberto from Savannah asks the question from 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And on that list was drunkards. And so it's not a disease. You're morally accountable to Almighty God. So someone who lives the lifestyle of drunkenness is typically an unbeliever. Is it possible for a true born-again Christian to slide back into any kind of sin? Certainly, but if they do, they come under divine discipline because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. But as a general principle, the Scripture's clear. There's no assurance given to people who have this as the projection of their life, whether it's homosexuality or adultery or fornication or drunkenness or thievery or whatever it might be. So, Uh, these are important issues. But again, with that said, I don't think you have a model. In fact, I don't think, I I know there's no model in Scripture to target audience anyone. Now, it's admirable for a church to reach out and say, we care about drug addicts and drunks, and we can offer you hope. But the New Testament church is not a pointed segment of people. Now, you might have a ministry within that church that welcomes people with these problems. And that's magnificent. And we've done that many times at Community Bible Church. 
But it's very different to say our whole church ministry is focused towards this group. No, in the church there's older men, there's younger men, there's older women, there's younger women, there's children, there's the whole spectrum of people. It's not a particular Rick Warren target audience. Who's your target audience, Rick? Oh, well, you know, um, Samantha and Sam, he even named them, and Saddleback Sam, Saddleback Samantha. Well, what do they look like? Well, you know, they make between seventy and 150000 a year. They're this age to this age. and That's just nonsense. It's an untruth. It did the church tremendous harm what he presented as to who you should reach and even how you should reach them in terms of what Sunday morning church should look like. Rick Warren has done more to help dismantle evangelicalism along with Bill Hybels than just about anyone I can think of. And, of course, then we learned that Bill Hybels was nothing but a big fake in terms of all the multiple adulterous relationships he had going on over the decades. So all I'm saying to you is that model is not something, you know, if you want to have a church with a ministry reaching out to these people, great. But to say this is what our whole church is about, that's unbiblical. That's not sound. And so what that reflects is an absence of sound theology, which would really make me question the legitimacy of the leadership. Now, many times people have a passion because maybe they were saved out of an alcoholic, drug-addicted background. And by the way, this is growing in numbers like we've never seen before, where we went in one year from 20,000 overdose deaths to, in 2021, over 100,000. And in 2022, we're going to break that. I mean, this is just tragic. Hundreds of people are dying every week across America. And young people, and they don't, oh, it's okay to smoke a joint. And for that matter, they think it's okay to drink wine. It's not. It's okay to smoke a, a joint. You know, well, the joints you're smoking are 20 times more powerful than the joints maybe your parents smoked 30 years ago. Not to mention, many, much of it is being laced with fentanyl, and um, people are dying because of it. So... We need to reach and care for every segment of society, but the church's target goal should be anything that moves, anything that's alive and breathing, that lives in your community. That should be your target audience. All right. I think we've got time for one more. Anthony from Guyton, Georgia, said in a recent sermon, you mentioned that heaven would not be the same for every believer. Is that what Romans 14 is talking about? Well, Romans 14 definitely touches on the truth of the believer's judgments. So there are different judgments that are found in Scripture. And one is what we sometimes nickname the believer's judgment or maybe better, the judgment of the just. The only people who are present are born-again people. And so Paul reminds us that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he uses the plural pronoun we that will give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. So there's coming a time of evaluation of Christians in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's a judgment uh, not of punishment for in Christ, on Calvary, on Golgotha, he shouted, it is finished. All of our sin was paid for, past, present, and future. You cannot improve upon that. Um, this is a judgment for our service. In 1 Corinthians 3, 
Um, again, he reminds us no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And then he warns that he's speaking contextually about leaders in the church, but you could certainly express it and extend that application to everyone because that's what he does in Romans fourteen twelve. Be careful with the tools that you build with. And he's been kind of um, contrasting the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is we should just reach, we should have a church that just reaches a certain target audience. That's the wisdom of the world. That's not God's wisdom. Uh, so we are to use God's wisdom, God's tools, namely the Holy Scripture, to build God's church, lest we build a church that is maybe large and impressive that consists of wood, hay, and stubble versus something that when tested with fire, because God will test the quality of every man's work, and and you have gold, silver, and precious stones. Look, I'd rather have a handful of diamonds than a truckload of hay at the judgment seat of Christ because it's going to be tested with fire. For that matter, I'd rather have a bucket of diamonds. But, but still, uh, in Romans 14 and verse 12, He says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, again, in the context, he's talking about division in the church and being willing as a believer to give up certain rights so as not to cause another brother or sister in the Lord to stumble. That while you may have the freedom to do something that's not in violation of Scripture, you need to guard your behavior if it causes someone unnecessarily to stumble. And so there is a judgment that all Christians face. We will meet the Lord eyeball to eyeball. It will make a difference. You can't just say, well, I'm going to heaven. Well, you are if you've been saved by grace. But God is perfectly just, and his justice will extend even to his own people so that if you have Christian A who is faithful, he serves, he invests in the kingdom of God, and Christian B who's saved but maybe a little bit apathetic, it will make a difference at the judgment of the just. So that I have a whole sermon on this series on this very question. In this series called Prophetic Issues, uh, look at the sermon I just recently preached on the judgment of the just, and I go through, well, what kind of things warrant eternal rewards versus temporal? And I think that might be very useful to you. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us again today for the Bible line. If you don't have a place to go, and you live within a 50-mile radius of Beaufort County, we invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church. We also have campuses in Grays. So if you live up in Hampton or Varnville or uh, some of those places, Hineville, uh, you can go there. Or in Aiken County, we have a church campus in Graniteville. Maybe you have a friend there that you'd like to point them to. You can go to get all the details at communitybiblechurch.us for meeting times and places.